Hey everybody, on this episode of the podcast, OST's Vice President of Sales and Marketing, Lisa Elick, interviews Pat Carey, Senior Vice President at Stratasys, technology leaders in 3D printing. She talks with Pat about the evolving manufacturing space and how they're addressing these changes head on. Enjoy. So welcome, Pat Carey. I've known you for uh, some time now um, uh, through our, our time at Stratasys, but would love to have you introduce yourself to our listeners a little bit about who you are and your background. Great. Thanks, Lisa. So I'm the Senior Vice President of Strategic Growth at Stratasys. Been there for six years. I've had a number of roles, uh, both in, mostly in the sales and business development side. Before that, I was at a small Silicon Valley startup, an Israeli startup. One of the reasons I was recruited to Stratasys, because Stratasys is a unique Minnesota slash Israeli company. We share a headquarters. So I was recruited there, uh, moved back to Minnesota for this role. I was uh, kind of living out of a suitcase for a long time. And um, prior to that, I worked for Siemens. I ran the national sales and marketing for their smart grid division. Prior to that, worked for IBM a couple of times. It was there a total of 18 years and also worked for two other Silicon Valley startups. So kind of a wide range of experience. Can you share a little bit more about, first of all, Stratasys and also then your role there? Sure. So Stratasys is the leader in what we call 3D printing is kind of the common word. We tend to call it additive manufacturing. So we're the leader. We're, we're based here in Minneapolis area plus Tel Aviv. It's a combination of a number of large companies, but one was based in each. So we share a headquarters and we sell printers, 3D printers, not normal printers, 2D, yeah. uh, to the world's largest manufacturers, product developers, schools, basically a lot in the medical space. And the background on that is started as a prototyping company 33 years ago. So making product prototypes. So one of trying to develop in product development to the point now where we have machines on manufacturing floors making parts that are part of cars and airplanes and medical I saw devices. some recent press about the in the in going into space. Yes, going into space. We have a lot. Uh, we have hundreds of parts on the space station, literally hundreds. So so we live in manufacturing. You know, uh, we tend to be outside of manufacturing and prototyping around product development, but now we're actually in manufacturing. Now myself, I've been, uh, I'm head of what's called strategic growth. So we're entering a, a period of new technology. We have a lot of new technology coming this year and next year. And I was VP of sales for three years, but really shifted to this. So how do we bring these new products to market? It's new market segments and new applications. So things that our customers are not used to us doing. So it's kind of a needed more of a focal area than the highly transactional VP of sales job. Yeah. So I would imagine with that kind of a role, right? SVP of strategic growth uh, in a company that manufacture, you know, is a leading manufacturer itself, but also serves, as you mentioned, the world's largest manufacturers, uh, other manufacturing companies. So you have this this unique vantage point, I would imagine, of just what's happening in the manufacturing industry in general. Before we get to the digital side, I've got a few questions for you on that. But just in general, what are some of the the things that you've seen over the last several years that have remained the same at an industry level, and what are, what are some of the shifts that you've seen over the last few years? Well, you know, things change, but actually things always remain the same. It's kind of the conundrum we live in. So in terms of the process around new product development, so 
gathering voice of customer, doing development, iteration, bringing the product out, and then differentiating this very loud marketplace. That's kind of the same. That's good and bad. Uh, good is we know the process. That you know, people are doing the right research. They're bringing the right products out. Focus on what we think are the customer needs. It's always a gamble. Uh, what changes the speed? Hmm. So the di- the digitization of everything is really challenging people. So on the prototyping side, we're working with customers that are actually able to develop prototypes daily. It used to take months yeah. or multiple months to you know, let's just say a, a, a plastic housing of something. Mm-hmm. anything you can imagine, we can print that in a day, iterate with it, and it's not just, it used to be kind of a rough, like, white plastic print we'd make. Now we're able to do texturing, full color, you know, flexibility. So you're able to get, like, really, really close to a real prototype, sometimes in three or four hours. Yeah, it's amazing. So the, so the good thing is that the things that haven't changed are the processes. I'm finding customers saying we can iterate faster than our process can keep up we actually can get new product faster than we can decide what to do. Hmm. So it's kind of an interesting thing we're starting to see as processes become the problem. Um, and then all the way to the point now we're seeing digitization and maintenance. So spare parts after the fact. So we've digitized at the front end the product development. We've digitized a lot of the manufacturing. Now we're seeing a lot of digitization on the spare parts. So if you look at a product development cycle, people always forget about spare parts. And some of the industries we serve have spark parts for a long time. Like I was at Siemens, we had spark parts for 50 years because we're serving the electrical grid. So can you imagine? Um, so we're seeing processes are robust, things are the same, people are making good decisions, but now how do we keep up? Because if you don't, your competitor is. Yeah. They're passing you. Right? Exactly. You know, one of the things you just mentioned a second ago, uh, this, this idea of voice of customer, that's nothing new. Can't do that anymore. And it's got to, so we're starting to see, not this isn't a strategy statement, just what I'm seeing in the marketplace is it's got to be digital. We've got to see what people are doing, how they're interacting. We can actually, as we know, you know, the evil tech empire, right, controlling us. We won't dare say the names on the podcast here, but because I'm, <laughs> I'm sure they know I'm here uh, in the room. But um, how do you track customer behavior? How yes. do you see where people have gone and stopped? You know, abandoned a cart, for example, gone and continued a transaction. So rather than asking a customer their opinion, we're actually able to digitally see where they're going, what they're researching, what they're interacting with. That's very interesting. And then how do you deal with all that data? How do you make a decision with that data? That's the challenge. Exactly, exactly. And and on that same uh, thread, when you think about product development process, most of the companies that right we've known that have been around for hundreds, you know, hundred years plus, a lot of them out there. Um, the traditional product development process is very lengthy. You know, it's one to two to three to five year processes and moving into this digital world and adding in whether it's you're trying to, you know, uh, have it be a connected product or smart product, a, a device or printer or whatever it is that has a digital component, that world is very different. Marrying those two can be a really difficult thing to do. What are you seeing as some of the challenges and ways companies are, are overcoming marrying the traditional product development process with the digital development process? William, I'll have an answer I don't think you expect, that we're seeing mass customization, which is kind of an old word, to the point of personalization. 
Hmm. So, so there's a car company that I really like that uh, didn't make two of the same car last year. Every car was different. And this is a big company, right? So how are you able to personalize? And again, that requires from the order entry to the ability to manufacture, to the ability to deliver credibly, track the data, track the process. So that's what we're starting to see. So I work with some of the largest car companies. I'm not going to say any names here, obviously. Some of the largest car companies and was dealing with the head of manufacturing of one of these companies. And he said, he says, Pat, I have to plan. I used to plan 2 million of a car. Now I plan 200,000 of a car. Wow. So I have to undo decades of process, decades of structure and design and putting things into place because that's what customers demand, right? They demand... I want a personalized car. I want the leather to be this color, the whatever, whatever. You get it. But people, that's what people want. They're willing to pay. And if you don't get it, if you don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. So that all requires lots of data, lots of input, lots of, you know, quant analysis, and then turning that into a new product and then delivering that new product on the fly. Because, you know, like, car, like imagine cars, mm-hmm. tractors, you know, you're going to pay, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars for a combine. It better be nice. Yeah, absolutely. It better be high quality. Speaking from a farmer's daughter, yes. Yes, yes. yes. It better be high quality. If you look at almost anything uh, expensive, it's highly customized. And that's where we, from, you know, added to manufacturing 3D printing, get involved kind of on the edges today. Yes. uh, Part of the manufacturing, tooling, and some of what we call end-use parts. So the parts on planes, cars, motorcycles, et cetera. But also just the product design. So knowing how to develop a product and then how to do it efficiently, build it fast, because when you introduce customization into manufacturing, that adds complexity. And cost. And lots of cost. And yeah. can I get the money back? Yes. Yeah. So you mentioned the, the, the actual manufacturing process. Twisting that a little bit to the more the customer experience or the customer buying motion as it relates to, to personalization, that's, that's one element, I would say, is of a changing expectation that customers have today is they want it personalized. In addition to personalization, they also want it to be really easy. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to, I want the buying experience to be easy. I want it to be connected. I want to be able to get a notification back that tells me where it's at and track it, right? There's all of these expectations that we that we all have today, different than we did maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, even two to three years ago, given the just massive impact of technology and the, I'm holding up my phone right now for the listeners, but the the ability that you have to do things with the click of a button, right? We we all have this this expectation that's different than it was in the past, and for companies to keep up with that, specifically manufacturing companies, on what the buying experience is with with the the thing that they're manufacturing, how are you seeing not just personalization impacting the buying motion, but what else do you think is is impacting that buying experience? Well, where do you put your effort? That's the question. Where do you put your effort, right? So the Amazonification of buying, right? We, if Amazon has that feature, we expect that feature in all purchasing, right? Because they dominate everything. They dominate our expectations, right? So do I, as a manufacturing company, do I want to go hire or get my IT group to say, replicate that process? And then three years later, have the process fail, the project fail, right? This is a big problem we're starting to see. So do I outsource the front end of my company? Or do I do part outsourcing, part expectation setting, part custom development? That's the questions you have to ask. Because we have these robust business systems that we spent. I used to be in the business of selling large ERP implementations, right? 
So we've all spent a lot of money putting the systems in. Those don't need to change, but the interface needs to change, right? And the question is, do I do that myself? Do I pay somebody to do it? Because the expectation is it's instant. I was thinking when you had your phone up, I was thinking I ordered some uh, carpet tiles the other day. Yeah. Great process. Some company, I, I Googled it. How do I find this? This is exactly what I want. I click a button and they came like 48 hours later and I got the tracking hit. It was there. It was in the back of the office, right? Yeah. Do you think five years ago that wasn't possible? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they, you know, they set an expectation. They had the best price. It, it got delivered. And I'm thinking of all the people, all the companies that went out of business because this company does a good job. I don't even know where they are. I, I was thinking when you did that, I didn't even know where that company is at yeah. and don't care. Yeah. Right. So how do how do small manufacturers or any manufacturer, how do they keep up with the expectation setting we have as consumers? Because in that case, I'm not a carpet expert. I just needed a certain color. It's a carpet square. I need a couple hundred of them. Right. How do you create that buying experience that's relevant today? And how do you do it in a cost effective way? Because to try to create that experience on your own and, and build an army and house to be able to do that is, is in, in a lot of cases. And can you imagine having a focus group in a carpet, you know, <laughs> just to make a big carpet because it's generic. <laughs> I mean, so the old world, we'd have a focus group. What does the buyer need? What's the voice of customer? No, Amazon has set the expectation. I have to meet that expectation of data integration, delivering it fast. All the processes are complete, like the FedEx tracking number. Yeah, yeah, that's an awesome example. So we've been talking about direct customer connections and, and, and shifts that manufacturing companies are, are taking to actually get access to data. Maybe the next question is, what do you do with all that data once you have it? How, how do companies know what to do with that? Yeah, how do you analyze it? How do you make decisions? How do you know, is the data all the data? You know, we live in these echo chambers. You know, just turn on the TV. You know, there's a there's a... There's a channel for a subsection of a subsection of a subsection of a subsection, right? And yes. if I just listen to that, I think, well, I live, in, I live in a perfect world. Everything on TV is my hobby. It's like me in the car, me in the car channel, right? Uh, so that's the that is an interesting question. What do you do with it? How do you know you have all the data? How do you compare it? That is a hard question to answer. And then how do you get out of your your echo chamber, your bubble? Because earlier I was thinking about one of the one of the concepts of how do we develop disruptive technology. Right. So most of what we've talked about is iterative technology. How do I make it better? And mostly iterative technology is about how do I make it better, but at the same time as a manufacturer, how do I make more money? Yeah. Because I want to reduce cost, right? Mm -hmm. Then how do I disrupt? Because if we watch, those the companies that come in with a different idea disrupt amazingly, and they tend to just consume the market, and then everybody eats away at them, right? So how do I innovate? At the same time, we're getting more efficient. That's the, that's the real question. I don't have the answer to it, but that's what I was thinking about is when you were talking earlier. It's like, how, how do we disrupt in all this? Is We tend to talk a lot about efficiency. Yeah. But how do I know what's really needed? I don't know. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing as it relates to the culture of an organization too. It's not just about, so okay, we've got all of this great data that our customers are saying here. They like this, they don't like this, they use it for this, or there's this feature that they would like or whatever that is. Um, not only do you have to be able to have the mechanism to do something with it, who's going to analyze that? How is it going to inform the, the R and D spend? How is it going to inform the marketing spend and the go to market plan and the right, all of those things? Um, there's a, there's a, there's a huge cultural shift that organizations need to go through oftentimes as you think about this shift into 
into digital and innovation and bringing things to market faster. How is Stratus starting to take on some of that? I mean, are you seeing a cultural shift at your organization or even just in the manufacturing market in general, um, sh- more broader cultural shifts? Let me talk about what I've been I've actually been thinking about and working on is around prototyping. I talked about this a little bit earlier. So we, we've done prototyping. We have a, a machine that does prototyping and it's a very expensive machine. So some very high end companies have bought it and really changed their product development cycle. Um, we're coming out with a new machine that's a lower price, significantly lower. So one of the, one of my projects in my new role is to really study this new market segment that's served by it. So the old market segment, we knew who they were. It's based on how expensive the machine, how much budget do they have for prototyping, you know, because it's an expensive machine, you have to have a budget. Um, as we look at this new machine, it enters a whole new market segment. And the thing I'm worried about the most is, how do I get to these people? Mm-hmm. The people in that old market segment that did development, product development, you know, iterative uh, design and printing of these you know, prototypes, it's obvious. This next market is, there's tens of thousands of these people, these design firms. And it's, 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 uh, it's, to me, it's part of my fun challenge of my new job. How do I get to these people? How do I speak? They speak a different language. They they group differently, right? The other people group, and these people group in a different place. They gather in a different place. They use different words. And for me, that's part of, that's why I've created this new role. I really need to think about that, find influencers in that space, go find some initial customers to say, hey, this worked. So that's, that's the challenge I have, you know, in my personal role. And that's what I see customers struggle with as well as, as, as they do something new are you just copying a company that's your competitor? Are you copying somebody after the market you're going in? And how do I gather data? So what I'm doing is, for example, I'm saying how many designers are in that space? I can get that number if I search hard enough. Mm-hmm. Where do they group? So consortiums, conferences, et cetera, et cetera. In this case, there's an education group that's part of that. So they're developing future designers. So how do I how do I find those people? So I have a lots of numbers, and I start starting to do data analysis, and even to the point of influencers. I was looking at this yesterday. How many Facebook friends do these influencers have? And I was mm-hmm. force ranking them, right? So this guy has literally seven million followers, right? How do I get to that person first and say, "Will you be my customer?" And if you do it, then this customer, is, you know. Then other customers say that person is doing it right. So I, you know, again, I'm, using, it's all, I'm, I'm really trying to be data driven in this process. We'll see how I do, but that's what I'm starting to see our customers do as well with their as they develop products, and and some fall on the old they follow down the old paths, and those are the ones that aren't doing so well, and other ones are kind of saying digitally, with data, how do I look at this? How do I find new markets, or how do I buy a customer? I've talked to a lot of people buying other companies, right? So I'm looking at this company. Does it get me to that place quicker? Do they have a customer set? Or is it just, you know, maybe you're buying somebody to get rid of a competitor. That yeah. may, be, may be okay. That's more of a cost savings things. But how do I grow? How do I accelerate my brand in a new space? Again, all digital, all data, and then lots of analysis, and then some risk on top yeah. of it, right? Take a risk. Well, I, what I like about what you're saying, if I'm if I'm hearing you right, is, is just thinking back through our conversation, it's about... Uh, recognizing that customers have these massively different expectations today, personalization being really important, um, this notion of um, you know 
getting access or building that direct connection to customers so that you've got the data to actually inform it, but then actually having a plan for what to do with that data. Um, And then also just the tail end of what you were saying is investing the time in exploring what what how does your business model need to shift given those things is there a new market you should be exploring is there a new uh way to access that market and i love that that uh stratasys has invested in a role like yours and, and certainly you being the one in it to really help i think take what you're doing to the next level so with that maybe a final question uh which is jumping back to you, we talked a little bit about your your career path with the various organizations and now being at Stratasys. One thing that I don't think I've ever asked you about, but that I'm curious about as we as we close this out, uh, I see that you uh, went through the Harvard Executive uh, Education Program a, a while back in your career, and I am just curious at what that experience was like for you. What 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 was a big aha coming out of that? Yeah, interesting. So I did it. I did it as part of a. So there's like the advanced management program for mid career executives. So IBM has it for people on the way up. So it's kind of a IBM centric, even though you're going to Harvard and it's. But you're with you're with a cohort of people that are with IBM. So part of the Harvard experience, the Harvard Business School experience, is you develop a cohort of people. You're with them together, like 18 hours a day, going to school and studying, and you bond as a group. So that was the IBM. It was an IBM version of it, but it was the same thing. I like to tell the story, but when people ask me that, the biggest the biggest aha was we got the and and I went through it in a long time ago. So we had books still, right? <laughs> <laughs> we had to go pick up books, and uh, one of the books was the budget from when Reagan was president, the federal budget. So it's this giant, like ten inch thick piece of paper, like it was the budget from the yeah. Office of Management and Budget, and you and you just we we're all together and we all looked at this thing like. Oh my God! This is going to be the worst class ever. We're going to go through the federal budget. We know the senators don't even read it, right? That's always joke. <laughs> so I just wrote this thing off in my head. This is going to be a waste of time. So we get to the class, and the teacher, and I, I don't remember his exact name. I think it was Stockman. He was the head of office management and budget under Reagan. The guy who wrote it was actually the teacher. I'm oh, sorry wow. if I knew you asked the question. I would looked it up, but uh, it was the most amazing class. The most amazing class, because he's talking, he was talking about how they had changed the depreciation law and how it affected tax income and how it was going to affect investment on factory floors and all this. And we're just, and he really took us through like the, the truly macroeconomic impact that it had. And at the time, the economy was stagnant. You know, Jimmy Carter not, was not president anymore. We had to, my home, the, the interest on my home was 21% mm. at the time. So they said, we needed to change the economy around. They had voodoo economics and drip down and all this crazy stuff that only some old guy like me will remember, but <laughs> maybe some of the listeners will remember, right? Uh, and, and, and so we went through this and he says, here's, here's the levers we pulled. Here's the things we changed. Here's the laws that we changed. And here's the accounting that changed in this budget. And here's the, the impact is our economy today. So that was the biggest aha was I went in, I went in with this, like the thought that this would be the worst class that ended up to be the best, best class, class and really really understand the economy and as a, at the time I was a salesperson kind of as I am now as always right but I was able from that to have the most interesting conversations with CFOs after that so before I would only I would I was always scared to talk to a CFO what I going to talk about so I use it as a way to talk to CFOs about depreciation and amortization yeah all you that. understand their world you can it really- actually became a huge deal that I was able to go in and understand things and it became like a, a career changer. And who would have known? 
Yeah. At the time. <laughs> that that class would have been a turning point for you. Yeah. Interesting. So you may or may not know this, but our corporate headquarters is based in Grand Rapids, Michigan at an old game factory. So to honor our tradition here in our podcast series, I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite game? Wow, interesting question. So I, I grew up in a household that my parents limited us on screen time before it was popular. <laughs> we had one hour a day. Uh, so we played a lot of games. And I would say that my favorite game is Scrabble. Scrabble? Yes. Oh, that's one of my worst games. We should play. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll play Scrabble with you if you play chess with me. Oh, okay. <laughs> So with that, thank you so much, Pat, for being willing to share your insights with us here today. Really appreciate you coming in. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks. OST, changing how the world connects together. For more information, go to ostusa.com slash podcast.